Okay, folks, welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Joy, and I'm joined by Yingyi and Chen, and we both work with Coolabar Capital Investments. Coolabar is a global fixed income manager. We record this podcast once a month, and the purpose of the podcast is to unpack tricky financial market issues of the day. Well, welcome, listeners. This is yet another episode of the Complexity Premier Podcast, and Ying and I are going to talk about uh, October and November. Uh, lots of exciting stuff to discuss. Over to you, Ying. Thanks, Chris. So October was another absolutely brutal month for equities risks, with the S and P five hundred losing two point two percent, the Euro stocks fifty shedding two point seven percent, and then we had the ASX All Ordinaries Index slumping three point nine percent. The Russell two thousand index in the US was down about five point six percent in twenty twenty three, as at the thirty first of October. And this was explained by a continued escalation in long-term risk-free interest rates as the US 10-year government bond yield leapt another 36 basis points from 4.57% to 4.93% in concert with rising risk aversion as a result of the advent of serious military conflicts in the Middle East. The ascent in long-term US risk-free rates was fueled by the high for longer narrative gripping after the Federal Reserve slashed its projected rate cuts in 2024 in half, coupled with an expansion in the quantum of US government bond issuance, which has surprised some participants. The latter is being powered by President Biden running enormous fiscal deficits worth about 6% of US GDP. Interestingly, the increase in discount rates was not universal. In Germany, 10-year government bond yields there slipped three basis points in October. UK yields rose seven basis points, while in Australia, yields jumped about 43 basis points from 4.49% to 4.92%. The risk-off tone bled into synthetic credit spreads as the US Investment Grade Credit Default Swap, or CDS, index, known as CDXIG, climbed six basis points, which is emulated by an identical move in the European IG CDS index, known as MAIN. In high-yield bond markets, the US CDS index, CDX High Yield, or CDXHY, widened by 36 basis points. Spreads on its European equivalent crossover climbed 22 basis points. According to Bloomberg data, overall cash credit spreads in the US and Europe increased from 121 basis points to 129 basis points and 153 basis points to 160 basis points in October, respectively. Comparatively, low beta Australian cash spreads drifted from 152 basis points to 154 basis points. US high yield spreads, as proxied by B-rated bonds, increased aggressively from 419 basis points to 468 basis points above US Treasury yields, although these remain well below long-term average spreads around 550 basis points and the 750 to 1,000 basis points plus spread range that B-rated bonds normally attain during a serious default cycle like the current one. The coincidence of widening credit spreads and much higher long-term risk-free rates hurt fixed-rate bond indices. The fixed-rate Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index lost 1.04% in October. Coolabar's Global Active Credit Fund that is benchmarked against the Global Aggregate Corporate Index outperformed this benchmark by 38 basis points in its very first month. Australia's Osborne Composite Bond Index fell by an even larger 1.85%. 
Coolabar's Australian long duration strategy called the Active Composite Bond Fund outperformed the Composite Bond Index by 0.16% net of fees in October and has beaten the index by 5.6% after fees over the 12 months through 31st of October, specifically returning 4.44% net versus the index's 1.18% loss. Yeah, Yingers, I certainly agree that as long-term risk-free government bond yields approach 5%, uh, it makes sense to be averaging into fixed-rate bond exposures or so-called duration. And that's certainly the feedback uh, we're getting from a lot of our uh, more sophisticated clients. And I think duration becomes particularly compelling as we see mean reversion in US inflation and more capitulation in the US labor market. We've already noticed the US unemployment rate increasing from uh, its cycle low around 3.4% up to 3.9%. We've definitely seen moderation in US consumer price pressures, coupled with a welcome reduction in US labor costs. Although the Fed's preferred measure of wage growth, the Employment Cost Index, which is a, a compositionally adjusted index that's superior to the average hourly earnings that one gets from the payrolls data, that index remains too elevated. Now, Chris, what did perform in October was cash and high grade, i.e. highly rated floating rate bonds or notes. Cash rates of 5% or higher in countries like the US, Canada, Britain and New Zealand would have delivered monthly returns north of 0.4%. A zero-duration version of the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index, which hedges out all interest rate risk exposures, rose by 0.18% in the month compared to the 1.04% loss posted by the long-duration or unhedged version. In Australia, the Osborne Bank Bill Index returned 0.33% in October. The Osborne Floating Rate Note Index, or the FRN Index, delivered 0.37%. Coolabar's floating rate, or zero-duration strategies, performed solidly in October. The lowest volatility solutions that target 1% and 1.5% over the RBA cash rate, called the Smarter Money Fund and the Coolabar Short-Term Income Fund, return 0.4% and 0.41% gross, respectively, or around 0.35% net. Over the last 12 months, the Smarter Money Fund and the Short-Term Income Fund have returned 7.2% and 7.3% gross, respectively, or circa 63 to 6.5% net of fees, depending on the unit class. As the financial market prices in a couple of additional rate hikes from the RBA, the annual yield to maturity on these portfolios has climbed. As at the end of October, the annual yield to maturity on the Smarter Money Fund was 5.75% gross, while it was 5.89% gross on the short-term income fund. Both strategies have daily liquidity and an average credit rating of A. Notwithstanding the losses that we've seen in equities and bonds, the long short credit fund returned 0.33% gross or between 0.27 to 0.29% net of fees in October and has delivered a return of 15.4 to 15.5% net of fees over the last 12 months to the 31st of October. This was closely followed by the floating rate high yield fund, which returned 0.26% gross or between 0.17 to 0.19% net of fees in the month and 10.3 to 10.5% net of fees over the past 11 months. Note that it launched in December 2022 and has not yet completed a full year. The Long Short Credit Fund had an annual yield to maturity of 9.36% gross at the end of October with an average credit rating of A+. Meanwhile, the Floating Rate High Yield Fund had an annual yield to maturity of 9.63%, 
and an average credit rating of A. As always, please know that past performance is no guide to future returns and investors should consult the product disclosure statement to better understand the risks. The high yields on these strategies supported performance in the face of a widening credit spreads. In Australia, five-year major bank senior bond spreads appreciated from 92 basis points to 95 basis points over the quarterly cash benchmark known as the bank bill swap rate or BBSW. And while there were no new major bank senior bond issues, we did see a AAA-rated RMBS transaction from CBA that priced at 105 basis points over BBSW. In the Tier 2 bond market, there were no less than four deals announced in October from CBA, um, which priced at 205 basis points over BBSW, QBA, which priced at 255 basis points over BBSW, Bendigo, which priced at 260 basis points over BBSW, and IAG, which priced at 250 basis points over BBSW. And all of these printed at all-in interest rates of between 65 to 7%. This sudden spike in supply contributed to five-year major bank tier two bond spreads increasing from about 193 basis points to 198 basis points, which taxed performance. One floating rate sector that struggled in October was the ASX hybrid market, where spreads on five-year major bank securities leapt from 253 basis points to 290 basis points. This was likely related to expectations of a new deal coming from one of the major banks in November, and it has since been announced to be Westpac. Coolabar's full capital structure ETF strategy that it runs for beta shares, known as HBRD, substantially outperformed the sole active major bank hybrids index by 0.62% in October. As a result of the strategic repositioning of its portfolio away from hybrids and into higher ranking senior bonds and T2 bonds. Despite HBRD's move up the capital stack, its annual yield to maturity remains a robust 6.53%. At the end of October, HBRD was diversified across 86 hybrids or bonds and had a 38.2% allocation to hybrids. 49.8% to subordinated bonds, 10.8% to senior bonds, and 1.3% to cash. Now, with all of that, Chris, I want to ask you some questions. Let's begin with T2. I mentioned the spike in T2 deals. Has there been much more action in November? Yes, there has indeed, Yingers. So as you intimated, there were four deals firstly in October, with transactions coming from CBA, QBE, Bendigo and IAG. We participated in all of them and they paid attractive interest rates of between 6.5% per annum and 7% per annum. And then somewhat surprisingly, post the bank's full-year results, that's three of the four majors, ANZ, NAB and Westpac, we saw Westpac launch a 10-year T2, specifically a 15 non-core 10, paying a fixed annual interest rate of 7.2% per annum. And they printed $1.5 of that bond on the back of a very strong book of around $2.3 And what was perhaps even more surprising is is that literally in the middle of that deal, they launched another 10-year T2, this time a 10-year bullet maturity in US dollars, and hedged back to Aussie dollars that paid an even better interest rate of about 7.5% per annum. Indeed, that US dollar Westpac Tier 2 looked about 70 basis points cheap to the Aussie dollar curve, and it was 10 to 15 basis points cheap to our US fair value. Needless to say, we participated in both. We ended up picking up about 150 mil US of the US dollar transaction and about 160 odd million of the Aussie dollar transaction. And what wasn't a surprise, Ying, is 
was NAB also coming to market in Aussie dollars with both three-year and five-year senior deals, both paying interest rates in the 5 to 6% per annum range. And there was you know, north of 5 to $6 billion of demand. They printed large size. We took down both bonds. And all these transactions have performed well. I will say that the bigger banks are much smarter issuers than some of the smaller banks and insurers. They really look after creditors like ourselves. We've seen consistently in October and November, CBA and NAB and Westpac all pay very handsome new issue concessions. So in CBA's P2 deal, the concession was about 15 basis points. In Westpac's T2 deal, which was twice as long in terms of its maturity, the concession was more like 30 basis points. And in NAB's senior deals, the concession was around 10 basis points. What we haven't been so happy with is the smaller transactions from QBE, Bendigo and IAG, where issuers have tried to get away with printing higher beta, less actively traded T2 deals with higher credit risk than the major securities. And instead of paying a larger concession to investors, which would normally be the case, we think they've been poorly advised by joint lead managers to pay smaller concessions or no concession at all, which is pretty preposterous. So we're watching this dynamic very carefully and we don't want to see a persistent pathology of poor behavior emerge from these JLMs, these joint lead managers who are advising some of the less frequent bond issuers. So Grace, look, if you can get up to 7.5% per annum interest rates on bank bonds, what does this mean for asset allocation? Well, what we have seen is a clear shift from our larger institutional clients who are demonstrably pivoting back into fixed income. And the CIOs of these $100 billion plus super funds will say to me, Chris, if I can get 7% per annum interest rates on bonds issued by the major banks with good liquidity, incredibly low default risk, and inherently low capital volatility, then that effectively becomes the new hurdle rate for all asset classes. And right now, Aussie shares, even grossing up dividend yields for franking credits, are only paying a franked yield in the high 5% territory. It's well documented that A-grade commercial property is still only paying yields in the 4 to 5% range, and that's before transaction costs. You see a similar dynamic with resi property. Investment yields are around 3 to 4% before transaction costs. Even CBA shares fully franked are only paying grossed-up dividend yields of around 6.6%. So this presents a huge conundrum for asset allocation, as you've asked, Yingers, because if cash deposits are paying about 5%, risk-free government bond yields are around 5%. Senior ranking bank bond yields are close to 6%. And T2 bonds from the major banks are paying as much as 7.5%. You'd want to be earning at least 3 to 5% per annum above that circa 7% yield from very low risk bonds to take on the extra default risk, capital risk, and liquidity risk that you get in junk bonds, high-yield bonds, private credit, equities, venture capital, private equity, of course, commercial property, and infrastructure. Now, the problem, of course, is that I think most investors here and now have the wrong asset allocation. Portfolios are really geared towards the low rates for long world that existed between 2008 and 2021 when cash and bonds paid nothing. So we see amongst our clients, particularly in the wealth space, they're massively overweight equities, massively overweight illiquid private credit, massively overweight property, and they're all desperately and belatedly trying to switch back into high-grade fixed income and cash. But if you're in a commercial property fund that's frozen, you obviously can't do that. 
The same is true in a liquid high yield and private credit. In private credit, we're hearing stories of many funds having liquidity problems. We're also hearing war stories from our clients that returns from venture capital and private equity have been horrendous. And the real concern is these liquid asset classes like VC, PE, commercial real estate, infrastructure, and private credit have not responded or adjusted to this new normal of cash and bonds with little risk paying 5 to 7%. This is why we see listed real estate investment trusts trading at 30% discounts to net tangible assets. Now, those NTAs are meant to be right, but of course they're not, or at least listed market investors are saying those NTAs are totally wrong. And it's the illiquidity in the unlisted commercial properties that are not trading, which is allowing their valuations to remain massively overinflated. And it's not clear to me that those 30% discounts to NTA are actually cheap. It's clear that the NTAs are just demonstrably wrong. If you look at commercial property cap rates, and if A-grade cap rates have to pay you 3% to 5% above risk-free government bonds, that implies cap rates need to go to 7 to 9%, which in turn means that listed NTAs probably need to fall 35 to 45%. So these listed REIT discounts could actually still be very expensive. So the key message on, I think, asset allocation is, is you really want to avoid illiquidity like the plague. I think you want to be long liquidity, cash, and high-grade fixed income. And if and when those illiquid asset classes properly clear and adjust, and when real mispricings present themselves, then you can draw down on your cash and bonds and switch back into those much riskier asset classes. But it's not obvious to me that that's going to happen anytime soon. But to be clear, that's not personal financial advice. They're just my own views. To my mind, we've got a multi-year battle pull inflation back to earth, which means interest rates are going to remain high for a long time. And it's going to take some of these liquid asset classes like commercial property, infrastructure, VCP, and private credit, potentially years to adjust. So Chris, Speaking of inflation, we saw the RBA raise rates in November. Did this surprise you? And do you think that there are many more to come? No, Ying, is after the material upside surprise to the September quarter inflation data, we absolutely expected the RBA to hike rates in November. And indeed, market pricing shifted from not anticipating a hike in November to imputing an 80% probability of one immediately after the CPI data. The waters were, however, muddied by political interference. In particular, we had the Treasurer come out right after the inflation data and publicly argue that there had not been a material increase in inflation, despite every sane economist in the land concluding there had been. And this was significant because the RBA had set up a test prior to the inflation data, which stipulated that if there was a material increase, they'd hike. The situation was also confused by the fact that leading commentators like Terry McCran argued that the RBA was absolutely certain to keep rates on hold in November. The AFR's Karen Malley also argued that the RBA was more than likely going to keep rates on hold. And there was a bit of a media furor around whether this represented unprecedented political interference in the monetary policy setting process. The context here is that in addition to saying that the inflation data did not meet the RBA's materiality test, the Treasurer has thus far refused to appoint a deputy governor to the RBA, which is denying the RBA governor her second insider vote at board meetings. The Treasurer has also recently appointed two dovish members to the RBA board that are associated with the labour movement. He has thus far not signed the statement with the RBA on the conduct of monetary policy. And there's debate as to whether that statement placed more 
emphasis on maximising employment growth in addition to price stability. And finally, the government hasn't legislated the recommendations of the independent review of the RBA that it commissioned that will result in quite far-reaching changes as to how it carries policy out. Another dynamic was that immediately after the inflation data, the Governor Michelle Bullock gave parliamentary testimony where she was very surprisingly quite dovish and refused to classify the results as a material upside surprise, even though we subsequently learned that the data forced the RBA to upgrade all of its inflation forecasts and further delay the period in which it would return inflation to target, specifically the midpoint of its 2 to 3% target, which now won't be until mid-2026. The RBA has also reduced peak rate in unemployment to just 4.25% as part of this hiking cycle, which is conspicuously below its estimate of full employment around 4.5%. Finally, the governor in this testimony was also gushing about fiscal policy, which is surprising because... Everyone agrees that fiscal policy is creating inflation pressure as a result of hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure spending that the states and the federal government are trying to push through in the next few years. So whilst the RBA did hike, another oddity was their statement was very dovish and they've shifted from signalling that more hikes are likely to questioning whether they need to tighten policy further. And so perversely, what you had was the Aussie dollar fall after the hike and bond yields decline which is the opposite of what you would expect. We do think that more hikes are required and the RBA will be compelled to lift rates again, particularly in the context of very rapid population growth, immigration, surging house prices, and what we expect will be new data on very strong wage growth in November. The market disagrees, however. The market's saying that basically the RBA uh, is one and done and that this is the end of the hiking cycle. What we do know is the RBA will be very data-dependent And ultimately, the data will determine how many hikes materialize. The RBA does look out of step with key peers around the world. They've only just moved to 4.35%. New Zealand is at 5.5%. The US is at 5.25% to 5.5%. Canada is at 5%. Britain is at 5.25%. And even the Europeans, with an unemployment rate that is almost double ours, are at 4.5%. And look, there's been some talk of when central banks do eventually come to cut rates, they may not cut them as far as they've done previously. Why is that, Chris? Yeah, you guys, because these hikes are not having the impact that folks expected and central banks have been forced to lift rates a lot further than they originally planned, all the evidence suggests that there's been some upward drift in the normal level of rates or the so-called neutral rate. So if we look at the US, the Fed thinks neutral is 2.5%. But if we run four of the Fed's different models of its normal or neutral rate, they suggest that neutral has actually uh, recently increased to about 3.6%. And that's broadly in line with an increase in market pricing estimates of the neutral rate, which we see at around 3.9%. So this means that investors may be disappointed when rate relief eventually comes because the Fed may not be going from 5.5%. Of course, it's possible they have to hike further down to 2.5% we may find that they stop cutting at 35 to 4%. This would obviously be important for the long-term level of government bond yields and therefore discount rates and the hurdle rates that all other assets have to compete with. And Chris, there's been a recent deterioration in global activity data. Although Australia remains surprisingly resistant to the impacts of rate hikes, what's driving that? Well, the best explanation as to why rates have had to go a lot higher than markets and central banks originally projected, is the advent of these enormous consumer saving buffers that were built up during the pandemic 
as a result of lockdowns and massive and unprecedented government handouts. So on our numbers, we estimate the excess savings buffers in Europe were worth as much as about 5% of annual GDP. And in the US, they're actually worth more than 8% of annual GDP. And we've seen these buffers gradually exhausted over time in the US and Europe to the point where right now we estimate they're only sitting at about 1% of GDP and they should be fully depleted around the end of this year. So you've had massive extra spending, massive extra demand, and therefore massive additional inflationary pressure that has been exclusively attributable to households spending their pandemic savings. And this is what really explains both the surprising economic resilience in the face of record rate hikes, but to your questioning is, it also explains, I think importantly, uh, the recent rolling over of global activity data and some new weakness that has emerged in US data as the cash buffers are exhausted. And our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, recently published some of our latest research on something called the SAM indicator that suggests the US may in fact now be entering into a recession. Crucially, the stories are very, very different in Australia. Care of much harsher lockdowns than the rest of the world and care of generally much more profligate fiscal policy. The Aussie cash buffers were as much as 13% of GDP Rather than sitting at 1% of GDP, they're still 11% of GDP. So households have only just started burning through those buffers and there's a lot left to go. And we think it'll take well into the second half of 2024 before these buffers disappear. Now, of course, this means the RBA may have much more wood to chop while at the same time navigating this new emerging political conflict and its preternaturally very dovish attachment to avoiding job losses and increasing unemployment. Notwithstanding, that's exactly what we need because ultimately the inflation problem is being driven by excess demand, excessively high wage costs, and very poor labor productivity because businesses are just carrying too many people for the products they're producing. So all central banks globally are trying to destroy demand. They're trying to kill off those weaker zombie businesses, increase unemployment from its historically unusually low levels and much more normal benchmarks, and thereby put downward pressure on wages and improve business productivity. So, Chris, with all of this in mind, what about in the illiquid and riskier debt markets that are exposed to this default cycle? Can you elaborate on whether we're seeing signs of stress emerge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we're hearing lots of stories of private debt funds getting outflows while at the same time facing the spectre of borrowers not repaying the money that they've lent them. We've certainly seen a big disconnect between default rates on home loans that are issued by non-bank lenders that are unregulated and those issued by banks. There's been a big spike in the default rates on those non-bank mortgages, whereas the increase in arrears on bank home loans has been quite benign and very orderly. Uh, Globally, we're seeing a very sharp increase in defaults on high-yield bonds and in global private credit. We're seeing recovery rates plummet on these loans when they go into default. So on US senior secured loans written by private credit funds and non-bank lenders, recovery rates are normally around 60-70%. And this year they've been 20 to 30% because they've lent to businesses at massively overinflated valuations. We continue to see a big increase in insolvencies in Australia, back to 2015-16 levels, albeit off you know, very low starting points. And this is all going to continue as businesses belatedly react to the massive increase in their cost of borrowing. I was speaking to an insolvency practitioner the other day 
and he mentioned that the ATO has been much tougher mm. on cracking down on businesses who owe the tax office money. And I think he mentioned that Australian businesses now owe the ATO about 50 to $60 billion in unpaid taxes, which is up from about 10 to $20 billion prior to the pandemic. And again, a lot of these riskier businesses are going to be financed by non-bank lenders. The other thing we're noticing in high-yield markets and private credit markets is that credit spreads haven't widened much at all and interest rates are not adjusting properly because these lenders know that if they charge much, much higher cash rates and use much, much wider credit spreads, they're only going to worsen the defaults and losses in their portfolios. And certainly you can read about some of the high-profile casualties in the media, like Genesis Healthcare, its loans were a common feature of many private credit portfolios in Australia. So it really reminds me of you know, the Aussie investors who got caught in Credit Suisse hybrids and Virgin Senior Bonds. It's the same old story of just blindly reaching for risk. And obviously, as unemployment rates ineluctably increase and those cash buffers that have bailed out the global economy, the pain in cyclically sensitive sectors is going to get a hell of a lot worse. So, Chris, how are you currently constructing your own portfolio then? Yeah, I often get asked this question, Ying is, uh, right now I'm basically 75% in high-grade floating rate bonds and 25% in high-grade fixed rate bonds because I want to average into that fixed rate duration exposure. Given we've seen 10-year government bond yields rise from just 0.5% a few years ago to around 5% today, and I'll probably ratchet up my fixed rate bond exposure once I'm convinced the US labor market is capitulating and wage costs and services are inflation are truly mean reverting. Okay, Yingers, we might wrap it up there. Thank you to everybody for listening and taking the time. We really appreciate it. We know how busy you all are. And best of luck navigating these treacherous waters. does not provide financial advice it is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions all views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party if this recording contains reference to any financial products that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon listeners in australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments